0: I'm Perry, and you're listening to The Beauty Brains. Welcome to The Beauty Brains, a show where real cosmetic chemists answer your beauty product questions and give you an insider's look at the cosmetic industry. This is episode 224, and I'm your host, Perry Romanowski. And with me today uh, is a lot of audio questions. Valerie sends her regrets, but work has been keeping her super busy, so she won't be joining us today. But she'll be back for the next show. I did also talk to Sarah Bellum, but she's busy, and I hmm, wonder what Randy is up to. Ah, anyway, on today's show, I'm going to be answering questions about whether beauty supplements can make hair and skin look better, what exactly is skin pH, and whether you have to mix your products exactly to get them to work. I'll also give you my thoughts on a few beauty science news items that I stumbled on in my internet feeds. Of course, I like to warm up with a little chit chat. First, I hope everyone is staying safe during this pandemic. I know a lot more things are opening up here in the United States, but boy, just keep wearing those masks, people, and practicing social distancing. I I know they're a pain. I'm not actually a huge fan. But they do help to stop the spread of the virus, and so you should keep wearing them. Of course, this can't really be too good for makeup sales. I figure, right? you know, it's certainly not lipstick. Incidentally, when I mention masks, I'm not talking about those facial masks. I'm talking about the uh, ones that go over your your nose and mouth. I did actually see a, a, a story of somebody in the UK. They had a facial mask on, and they were wearing. They were riding on public transportation. Amusing, it was probably staged, but it does, does bring up an interesting point. Although, you know, now I wonder, actually, I don't really wonder, I'm sure this is going to come out. Soon, you're going to see facial masks that are infused with anti-aging ingredients. I'd be uh, skeptical that those work. All right, why don't I move on to some beauty science news? <music> One of the things that I always keep a lookout for are articles about sunscreens and specifically about SPF. Because I I often give the advice that, you know, once you get up to 50, anything higher than that is probably overkill. And I always thought, you know, SPF numbers has turned into like a marketing thing. And it's before there's SPF 15, then there was 30, then there was 50 and 75, and now 100 and 100 plus. And these numbers from a science standpoint, these numbers are always, so these numbers seem a bit misleading to me because as a consumer, you see a number SPF 15 and then you see a number SPF 30. It obviously means, oh, it, it, it seems like it means that though the, the, the 31 is twice as good as the 15. But SPF is actually a logarithmic scale. And so 30 is not twice as good as 15 um, as far as blocking the amount of UV radiation that's coming in. And also then when you go 30 to 50, 50 is not like nearly double as good. As 30 uh, it's, it's just not like that, but the way that these things are marketed, it can certainly seem that way. So when I saw that someone came out with a SPF 100, it just seemed like pure marketing gobbledygook to me, because once you get up to SPF 50, you're blocking you know almost 99% of all UV rays, and so if you put on SPF 100, you're not really blocking that much more. So I've always been skeptical of these uh, really high SPF values, but in, you know, I'm always open to uh, new research and I saw some research here uh, in Science Direct asking the question, does SPF 100 work better than SPF 50? And according to this research, after five days, uh, 31 participants, which was 56% of people, had more sunburn on the SPF 50 plus side as compared to only 4 or 7% using SPF on the 100 plus side. So this is what they did. In this study, they had uh, groups of people and they'd have them put sunscreen on one side of their face and sunscreen on the other side of their face. SPF 50 was one, SPF 100 was the other, and then they just, uh, it was an observational study and they just uh, observed them over time. According to their research, overall the mean erythema intensities, that's the sunburn, showed statistically significantly less erythema with the SPF 100 side as compared to the SPF 50 side. Now, the first observation of sunscreen exclusively on the SPF 50 side occurred after only one day of sun exposure, whereas it took three days of constant sun exposure on the SPF 100 side. So they conclude from this is that in practice, SPF 100 was significantly more effective in protecting against UV radiation uh, induced erythema and sunburn. Uh, It actually worked better than the SPF 50. And this was in actual use uh, in a beach vacation setting. So what does this mean to you? I mean, it would suggest that the SPF 100 um, does provide at least some benefit. Now, I'm sure the researchers who I think this was from Johnson & Johnson... Yes, this research was sponsored by Johnson and Johnson Company, um, and so anyway, there there is that. The other the other thing here is that uh, only the initial sunscreen uh, applications were monitored by the people who run the study, and so you know it's it's possible that the people who were putting it on their face themselves kind of screwed up so you don't know about it wasn't a completely controlled study but it was a randomized double blind split face uh study so you know it, it looks like maybe using an spf 100 uh can give you more a, a little bit more protection especially if you're not going to diligently reapply i i personally don't like the feel of the hundreds they make my skin feel too grimy or whatever. And I don't think the extra protection that you're getting as highlighted in this uh, study is really that amazing. But, you know, the bottom line is at least according to this research, sponsored by somebody with uh, some skin in the game, is suggesting that SPF 100 can actually be better for you than SPF 50. So take that what you will. The other study that I saw was related to the CIR. We've talked about the Cosmetic Ingredient Review Board before. This is the organization in the United States that reviews the safety data of uh, ingredients, cosmetic ingredients, and they declare whether things are safe or not. Well, it looks like they just came out with a report um, assessing a variety of different ingredients. They found that... uh, in ingredients like palm and vanilla and pomegranate extract and soy and honey were all deemed to be safe in their final safety assessments. I'm just looking through uh, ingredients that were tentatively safe. Uh, interesting one is uh, mesoloisothiazolinone. That is a preservative, which uh, is much maligned and actually in the EU, uh, you you can't use it on leave-on products, uh, and this is due to uh, aller- allergic reactions. Uh, a fair amount of people have sensitivity to this ingredient, and uh, but if you're not sensitive to the ingredient, it's it's perfectly fine. And the CIR says it's tentatively safe with qualifications, which means uh, probably you can't have it in leave-on products, but it works fine for rinse-off. Methacones were safe. Uh, now, the interesting ones that had insufficient data, so they couldn't say whether they were safe or not, just in, insufficient. Uh, papaya was uh, was deemed not to have enough data to say whether it was safe or not. So, you know, and papaya is one of those ingredients that people can be sensitive to. And just just because something is natural doesn't mean it's good to put on your skin. So at the moment, I think I would be wary of putting anything with papaya on on your skin. Uh, Of course, if you're not sensitive to it, you might be perfectly fine. But uh, if in general, I I would recommend avoiding papayas. So there you have it. Uh, CIR puts out ingredient uh, studies about once every quarter. So that's the latest stuff is safe. Shall we move on to some beauty questions? Yeah, let's do that, Perry. Wait, you're talking to yourself now? No, I'm not talking to myself. This is it's a whole new character. It, it sounds a lot like you. Would you just get on with the questions? All right, let me play the first audio question. Hi there, um, my name's Claire and I'm from Melbourne in Australia. Um, I really want to grow my hair longer, but it's just taking forever. Um, it doesn't seem to grow as long as it used to when I was in my twenties and thirties. Um, I'm 42 now. Um, anyway, I keep seeing advertisements for Vita gummy type hair growth gummy things, um, like hair growth vitamins, um, Do they work or are they just a load of rubbish? Is it going to be my um, magic bullet to get me long, glossy, glorious hair? Or am I just wasting my money? I feel like I kind of know the answer, but I just want to know what you think. Bye. Well, Claire, I think we both kind of know the answer, don't we? Now, it's no secret here on the Beauty Brains or people who listen to the show so secret that I'm not a huge fan of uh, supplements. I don't think uh, generally people who are perfectly healthy need to take any supplements unless they're prescribed by the doctor, uh, which is completely different than the advertising you see for these things on TV. But I looked into this Vita gummy hair growth products, and I'm not impressed. Now, I looked at the research of this whole idea of eating something to affect hair growth now there are a number of compounds popularly believed to affect hair growth these include protein uh, vitamin c biotin vitamin b12 zinc niacin essential fatty acids iron copper selenium vitamin a and vitamin d now i mentioned these because these were the ones that were mentioned in a review paper of this exact question Uh, the question of whether eating some specific supplement or nutrient is going to affect hair growth. Now, this paper uh, says, and I quote, there is no evidence that any of these will affect the hair growth of anyone who is not malnourished. So unless you have an eating disorder or you're starving, you are not going to see any benefit from using a supplement to grow your hair. Unfortunately, that's just reality. And the paper specifically calls out that biotin, which I know if you read on the internet, people love biotin and they take biotin and they want to make their hair and nails strong. Well, they specifically looked at biotin and they have not shown any increase in hair growth in people who are healthy. So the bottom line is that biotin and none of these other things and a supplement form is going to make your hair grow. And the Vita Gummy product actually claims to contain 16,000% the recommended daily level of biotin. Uh, So you're getting 16,000% more than you need just to be healthy, and none of that is going to help grow your hair anymore. So (laughs) I'm sorry, Claire. Uh, No, uh, these supplements are not going to help you grow your hair. The best you can do is to eat a good diet, uh, fruits and vegetables, and shampoo and condition your hair uh, as needed. Uh, But there's not much you can do to make your hair grow faster. Here's another supplement question that comes to us from Danielle. I love the supplement questions. Hi, Beauty Brains. This is Danielle from New York. I'm a longtime listener and a huge fan of your show. As a new physician and a beauty junkie, this could not be more perfect for me. My question is about the Halo Beauty supplements that are created by YouTube beauty influencer Tati Westbrook. She has claimed that her original hair, skin, and nails formula does everything from cure acne to heal eczema to make your hair and nails grow faster. She even claims it will stop your hair from going gray. She has some very impressive before and after pictures, but I just cannot believe that the changes in those pictures have anything to do with her product. Could you explain which ingredients she might be using to make these claims and whether it is possible that her formula is having so many effects? Well, I love this question and thank you so much for it, Danielle. Uh, I looked at these products. Let me just address the before and after pictures because on her website, they have a ton of before and after pictures. Uh, people before and after pictures are never a good measure of whether a product works or not now first it's really easy to trick uh, a photo you know just use photoshop it's not that hard and actually if you look at the photos on that website i'm they don't they weren't even photoshopped there is just a lighting difference there and they show a before and after and if you change the lighting just slightly you can make things look drastically different. Different, In fact, when I was in the claims group at uh, the company I work for, uh, the claims group is the ones responsible for substantiating any of the kind of claims that are put on in a bottle. One of the most difficult things that I found in the claims department was doing these before and after pictures and tracking how uh, treatment might affect someone's uh, appearance. Because if the somebody move their say you're taking a picture of somebody's crow's feet by their eye if they just blink their eye a little bit or they move their head a little bit that completely changes the picture and so it's very difficult to get these things to be consistent so that's why i'm highly skeptical of of, uh, photos before and after but let's just say even that those photos are real the other thing that you have to consider Whenever seeing a before and after photo or demonstration, this just doesn't tell you what would have happened if they didn't have any treatment at all. You know, that is, if you had no treatment, if you didn't do, if you had a condition and you didn't do anything to it for two weeks or three weeks, what would it look like? For me, most things go away. Like I had a bug bite, it was there, and then I did nothing to it didn't scratch it, and then a week later it was gone. Now, that's what, whenever you're evaluating any kind of treatment, you have to remember there are three things that can happen. First, the condition just gets better. Second, the condition gets worse. Or third, the condition doesn't change. Now, these things, these three things are the only thing that can happen, and they're going to happen uh, whether you use a product or whether you don't use a product. So when you see before and after pictures and someone says, oh, I used, I had this condition, I used this product, and I don't have the condition anymore, that's an interesting piece of data, And but it doesn't tell you what would have happened if they didn't use any treatment. And that's what you have to consider when you're talking about food supplements uh, or when you're talking about any kind of topical treatment or any beauty product treatment just because uh, you had a condition, you used a product and you saw a benefit, that doesn't mean that that treatment actually was having an effect. You have to that and this is why anecdotal data is is not good. We want to ascribe an effect where there isn't always an effect and it's very easy to fool ourselves and that's why as scientists, we look at not just single instances of whether something worked, we look at a group of people. Did it work for the group of people? And if something works for a group of people, uh, rather than just one individual, then we have more confidence that a treatment actually works. But as far as the supplements put out by uh, the vlogger, I mean, I I guess uh, beauty influencers need to make money somehow (laughs) And, and launching your own product is definitely one of the ways. There is nothing about these supplements that can justify stopping gray hair or any of the other claims that they're making. I will point out that at least in the United States, the beauty supplement industry or the health food supplement industry is practically unregulated. Uh, There was a thing passed called the Deshaies Act, and pretty much, as long as they put a disclaimer on there that claims have not been uh, validated by the FDA, they can pretty much say a lot uh, that they don't really have to establish is true. So I'll I'll leave it there, but uh, stay skeptical there. I also want to add that in a study published in the New England Journal of Medicine, an estimated 23,000 emergency department visits in the United States every year are attributed to adverse events related to dietary supplements. So these are commonly ca- cardiovascular problems related to weight loss or energy products among young adults and people with swallowing problems. But with older adults, they are usually due to excessive nutrients. And so, My advice on supplements is that unless you're malnourished or your doctor recommends it, I suggest you avoid any dietary supplements, even the ones publicized by social media influencers. Uh, They're probably not going to work. They might be dangerous. uh, And there's just no good reason to take them. All right, next up we have Tink's. Hi, beauty brains. Uh, my name's Tink. I'm new to listening to your blog, and I'm loving it. As someone who comes from a natural beauty background, it's um, opening my eyes quite a lot. So I have a question. You, in one of the blogs I've been listening to, you mentioned the skin not having a pH. I'm trying to find information on this in in online and can't seem to. And Everywhere in the natural beauty realm, is everything, is, as you mentioned, is to match the skin's pH. But if the skin doesn't have a pH, what are they matching? And where are they getting that it does have a pH from? It would be amazing if you could help. Thank you. Well, thanks for that question. I know that we had mentioned that some time ago uh, about that, but it's a great question. I've actually wondered about it, too. The reason that I had previously said that skin doesn't have a pH is because skin is a solid so, solids do not have pHs. That's because the definition of pH is the concentration of hydrogen ions in a solution. That in a solution part it means it's a liquid, it's not a solid. And actually, the H in the pH refers to the hydrogen or H ions. So, since skin is not a solution, it can't have a pH. Now, uh, you know, similarly, the, the floor or a rock or a table, these things don't have pHs either. So anything that is a solid doesn't technically have a pH. But you're right, people talk about pH all, all the time. They talk about balancing the pH and the pH of your skin and your hair. So what are people talking about? And what are we measuring? Well, as far as skin goes, and I looked into this because there are companies that sell probes that measure the pH. And I went to the company and I was like, all right, what, what are you really measuring? Because I know you're not measuring the skin pH. Well, it turns out that the outer layer of the skin is called the stratum corneum. And this is made up of dead skin cells, among other things. But on top of this stratum corneum, is a very thin, slightly acidic film called the acid mantle. This acts as a barrier to bacteria, viruses, and other microbes that might try to penetrate the skin or they just live on the skin, and this helps to prevent skin problems. So when people refer to the skin pH, what they are really referring to is the pH of that acid mantle or you know, it's just so it's just a skin, it's a skin apparent pH. And just as a shortcut, they say they just say skin pH. Now, this acid mantle it has a normal range, a pH range of pH 4.8 to 6.0. Now, recall that the pH of neutral water is 7. So anything lower than 7 is acidic. So skin has a basically an acidic apparent pH. Of course, even the acid mantle is not a solution when it's measured. So technically, that wouldn't really have a pH either. What what it does have though is a potential pH. So to measure it, you have to put some water on the surface of the skin and then you measure the pH of that solution. See, when you put the water on the skin, much of it is repelled because the general surface of skin is hydrophobic, which means it doesn't like water. It repels water. Um, but this is good because if you jump into a pool, you, you don't want to dissolve or you don't want to absorb so much water that you uh, bloat up like a big, fully gorged tick. But Not all the materials on the surface of the skin are hydrophobic. Uh, Some of them, like free fatty acids, are amphiphilic, which means that they are actually partially compatible with water. So when you put water on the skin, the amphiphilic compounds on the skin surface, they interact with the water, and what they do is release hydrogen ions into that water. That makes a solution, which you can then measure for the H plus concentration using a pH electrode. Now, I'm not going to get into how these works, but suffice it to say, electrodes can tell you how many H-plus ions are floating around in a solution, and the more H-plus ions you have, the lower the pH of your system. Now, this is to say, so different parts on your skin have different uh, levels of fatty acids, and so where you measure your skin, pH... Is going to vary, but when people talk about pH balanced products, uh, they're not referring to specifically to the skin pH. It's kind of an indirect measurement of skin pH. Now, onto the question of whether your products need to be pH balanced. You know, first, pH balance doesn't really have any real definitions, but I think most people use it to suggest that the pH is designed to match the apparent skin pH. Now, the idea would be that if your skin naturally has a certain pH, then you're going to want to use products in that pH range. Now, this only makes sense for things like cleansers and moisturizers. For products like exfoliators or ones with uh, active ingredients, you might need the pH that is lower than the skin acid mantle because maybe it's going to work better. And I'm thinking about, uh, you know, alpha hydroxy acids and exfoliators and that kind of thing. But even so, Whether you use something with a high pH or a low pH, over time, the skin mantle will restore itself, but it takes some time, and if you're using soap, it it can take like 14 hours to restore after washing with soap. Now, dermatologists give the advice that you should use products with a pH that is slightly acidic as so as not to disrupt the acid mantle. But the reality is that pretty much every product, you know, moisturizers anyway, are going to be formulated with slightly lower pHs. It just works better with uh, preservatives and uh, just the ingredients that you use to make them. So at least products from big companies, you know, that's they're going to be formulated at lower pHs. Now this isn't true of soap. Lots of soaps have a high pH, but again, if you like to use soap and you know you use it, your acid mantle is going to recover. It might not be the best for your skin, but it's not like you're horribly damaging your skin either. Uh, You know, I personally think the claim of pH balance is just marketing puffery. Uh, You know, pretty much everybody's product is pH balanced. You know, and and how balanced is it if you have a particular apparent skin pH of 4.8, but this product, this pH balanced product, is a pH of 5.5. You know where where's where's the difference that starts to matter? The reality is, uh, it doesn't matter that much. There is nothing particularly special about products that claim to be pH balanced. All the products are. All right, we got time for one more, and this comes to us from Christina. Hi, from Germany. Question you will definitely be able to answer. These days, it's possible to purchase a few serums that require mixing two different products before use in order to create the final desired one serum. Unfortunately, we often end up performing the process spilling a bit of one or the other bottle in our bathroom sink. So this is the question. will not keep in the exact required ratio render the serum less active? Or do brands know what is going to happen and probably allow a small margin for error? Right now, I am thinking about the NEOD or NEOD case, the peptide. Thank you. Bye. Well, thanks you for that question. And thanks you to all of our international listeners and actually to anybody who sends in questions i i was like the audio ones because if i'm doing a solo show it sounds better to have other voices uh well i looked at the uh the the products that you talked about the NIOD products and you know this is a whole system where you have two products and you've got to mix it in a two to one ratio and it does raise a good question does it matter if you do three to one or one to one does it really matter um I looked at this. There's no evidence that it really matters. So if you miss the 2 to 1 ratio as suggested here, you're not going to notice much of a difference. Honestly, I look at the the products here, and if you just used one or the other, I doubt you're going to see much difference in performance either. Um, the, The products are... The one the activator product is made up of water and glycerin, so it's going to be a good humectant. It's got a bunch of peptides in there, and we previously talked about peptides. I'm rarely impressed with the effects that you're going to get from these peptides, although other people are more impressed. Uh, the pro- the product in their their copper concentrate uh, is just water and copper gluconate, and that's supposed to react with the peptide. I guess, to make it work better. Uh, the two-in-one is is the ratio you're supposed to mix. Uh, look, the reality is, if you use this... They, they keep it separate because they don't want the, uh, the peptide to react too much with the copper and then break down and not be effective. But in reality, even when you're using this product as suggested, I don't think you're going to see much better results than if you had just used a a water glycerin and hyaluronic uh, acid uh, solution it's going to be moisturizing it's going to feel good on your skin i'm skeptical that you're going to see some notable difference and i certainly don't think that if you accidentally did a three to one ratio or a one to one ratio that you're going to notice any impact at all so don't worry too much about getting it exactly the way that they have done it now of course the brand isn't going to tell you that they want you to do the two to one uh but i would be shocked if you could see any difference in that so take that for what you will don't worry you don't have to be a cosmetic chemist and do exacting measurements to get these products to work the, the way that they're suggested to now whether they work or not more than just having used glycerin Uh, I'll leave that up to you to decide. All right, that brings us to the final part of the show. Now, before we get to the end here, I want to thank our patrons. We've got a number of patrons, so let me quickly go through the patrons who help keep this show coming to you every week. There's Andrew L, Jasmine L, Jasmine N, Ninergal, Helen M, Taryn F, Diana W, Autumn, Avgina, Karen, Stephanie P, IU M, Mario, Yvette P, Kimberly C, Melanie M, Kelly H, Liz B, Kasha K, Didette, uh, Anna, Extra Fries. I always like when uh, somebody uses a good, good username, uh, Tima M, Heidi H, Lois S, Eva T, Magdalena P, Maya, Melisande, Mary C, Stephanie C, Naomi, W, Alyssa W, Melanie W, Belladonna 1307, has been around for a while, Misty R, and our top patrons of all time, thank you, thank you, thank you, Christopher G, Kimberly R, and Emily D thank you all for your help in making the beauty brains happen if you want to show us your support for the show and get your name on the show every so often patreon is the best way to do that this will help keep the show going and avoid any of those pesky advertisements that i find so maddening in some of my other podcasts that i listen to actually i just skip over the commercials so thank you for the fast forward button but if you want to keep us ad free go to patreon.com slash thebeautybrains and subscribe. Well, thanks so much for listening. Uh, Valerie will be back next week. Hey, if you get a chance, can you go over to iTunes? Actually, it's not iTunes anymore. I think it's Apple Podcasts, and leave us a review there. They changed it. Apple always likes to change stuff, don't they? Anyway, uh, if you go and leave us a review there or at Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts, uh... Uh, That's going to help other people find the show and ensure that we have a full docket of beauty questions to answer. Incidentally, if you want to have a question answered on The Beauty Brains, just record it on your smartphone and then send it in an email to thebeautybrains at gmail.com or you can send us a message through our various social media accounts. On Instagram, we're at the beauty Brains 2018 On Twitter, we're at thebeautybrains. And we have a Facebook page also. I know I got a few questions from Facebook, which we will get to in a future episode. All right, that's it for me. I'm Perry Romanowski. Valerie will be back next show. Thanks again for listening. And remember, be brainy about your beauty. And cue the cats. Kittens!